This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today, I'm joined by Damiano Odoni, a research software engineer at the Research Institute for Nature and Forests. Damiano is our first RSC that is working outside of the U.S., and this is important to point out because we want to hear stories from all kinds of RSEs, regardless of geographic location. So Damiano, let's jump right in. Tell us where you are, where you work, and how you got there. Hi, Vanessa. I'm uh, an Italian guy who started to make a PhD in Belgium, where I started to program a lot. I didn't like it. There was no research software engineer in our group. It was difficult to learn Python for myself, completely almost alone. So after my PhD, I started so photography because I didn't want to have anything to do anymore with science at that moment. <laughs> and after photography, I found after two years that science was great. Why? Because I found this opportunity to work at the Research Institute of Nature and Forest. I found that my programming skills were actually quite useful to help somebody else. Interesting. After your PhD, when you said that you didn't want anything to do with science, do you mean that you didn't see yourself in a more traditional role of pursuing sort of a faculty position? Yes, yes. During my PhD, I realized that what I was doing was nice, but I was feeling quite alone. I have to admit, I had uh, a lot of artistic career and I started with photography while I was making my PhD. So I had this new world full of enthusiastic people. And on the other side, I was making my PhD almost alone, trying to debug my code. So if you have to choose, you choose for enthusiastic people, people with passion and love. And on the other side, I couldn't find it because it was just competition to get projects. I was seeing just a bunch of people fighting for money and getting to that. I think you're touching on a point that is very familiar to the average PhD student, even the average researcher. The word I would use is very cutthroat. Yeah. It's also an interesting point that you're making. What I'm hearing is that the people that you were working with are actually you were alone, so you weren't really working with were a huge factor. And I think in a lot of situations, whether you're an RSC or a researcher, it's easy to forget how important people are and even in some cases to attribute dislike for a role or position to be about the science, but really the underlying thing is the people because as you're saying, you were able to come back later with a different group of people and it was like night and day. Yes, people make difference. For me, I like science, but uh, if I'm surrounded by people where I don't have a real match, and there is no care for people, then I prefer to find another path for my life. I'm very happy now because I feel that I have my dream work. I'm in a team where care for people is first place. The Institute in some way is following also this kind of path. The Institute wants to be an open science institute. It's already an open data institute. There is a lot to do for that, obviously. They try to care about people. And yes, it's night and day, <laughs> the difference. Tell me more about the kind of work that your institute is doing and the kind of data that you're sharing. 
my institute is a Flemish institute. So Belgium, Belgium has three regions, Brussels, Flanders and Wallonia. So we work with nature and forests, so abiotic and biotic data. Personally, I'm from a team that is called the Open Science Lab for Biodiversity, but we are an externally funded team. So we work project-based. So this makes us not so different from any other team at university, let's say. Actually, we have to find our projects. And these projects are mainly related with biologging data. So we try to analyze and publish data with GPS data of births or camera traps, so images. Personally, I'm working with GBIF data, so Global Biodiversity Information Facility data. Let's say this is a gigantic database where a lot of countries publish biodiversity data. So we actually make software for analyzing data. We publish data. My team published a lot of data of Belgium, of associations related with nature, writing tutorials for Imbo and for everybody. So for this reason, we write everything in English, even if we are in a Dutch-speaking institute. This is actually what we do. And uh, I give coding club uh, at my institution, my institute. It's called Imbo Coding Club. All material is online, it's uh, open. We try to invite also externals, people who are involved in our projects. So biodiversity informatics can be a good word for what I'm doing. With a big accent on the word open data and open science. So we want to make our to make science reproducible. That is our mission in our institute and in our work in general. Where can someone that's interested to learn more about your software, the tutorials or data go to find it? I think the best point to start is our internet site. You can find more information on my Twitter. So it's Damiano as my first name and then Zingaro, Z-I-N-G-A-R-O. And then uh, you can find obviously more information on um, the Twitter actually of my team, OCBio, O-S-C-I-B-I-O. I think that is quite easy. From the Twitter of my team, you can go to the webpage of my team, uh, cbo.imbo.be. Even the webpage is open and uh, nice. Can you tell us more about your coding club? I was reading that it's sort of a peer-to-peer -peer learning and it's a group that's focused in R. Prompted you to create the group? What does it mean to get involved? So let's say for our institute, the choice was quite simple. 99% of biologists, at least in Belgium or in Europe, they use R. They don't know anything about Python. There is a, obviously a little community of Pythonists in our institute, but it's very, very small. Personally, I started to use R two years ago when I started to work at my institute. There is a huge need to have a, a place where we can learn together because actually people who don't know how to write code or nice code, usually they are alone, as I was some few years ago. They needed a place where we can meet each other, uh, monthly based, share our experience, focus on a topic. Everybody can jump in doesn't matter you didn't follow the last coding club or the last two coding clubs. Usually everybody's free to come. It's not always full. Sometimes there are 10, sometimes 20, 
Sometimes we have maximum 25 and sometimes we have a wait list. It depends on the topic, obviously. But we try to cover most of the topics the researchers in my institute feel a little struggling. And usually it's data transformation, which using some package, uh, data transformation, data import, data visualization, um, tidy data, how to reproduce, your, how to write a function that maps working with GIS data, so geography, GIS data. That's actually the most important stuff we usually provide in our coding clubs. We work with challenges. Why? We try to not give a tutorial because it's easy to write to, to give a tutorial instead to give a coding club. They have to try their own self to solve a challenge. And when they solve it, they must help the others. That is the idea of a coding club. The final goal is that everybody solved the challenge. It's not that you or I solve the challenge. Everybody has to solve the challenge. That sounds really fun. It's sort of like a miniature Kaggle. I don't know if you've heard of Kaggle. It's like an online yeah. data yeah. science yeah. platform combined with a small community and course, except it doesn't, it sounds like it doesn't have sort of the stresses that would come with a traditional graduate <laughs> course for exams and testing. That's a really no. great thing you put together. Well, we didn't invent everything on Salk because it's a data carpentry. I don't know if you know software carpentry and data carpentry. Yes. I would like to become a data carpentry instructor this year. So I tried to find a little of time this year to 2020 to become an instructor. But the point is that people are alone sometime in front of a computer and we want to give them ways where, where they can program together. They understand at that moment that they are not alone. So you create a community and they start to speak to each other sometime. And the things grow up automatically, let's say. That's a really good point to make. When you look across many graduate schools, you do have some camaraderie with labs or perhaps in classes, but I think there's a lot of graduate students and even staff in labs that are sitting in front of a computer and have these times when they feel fundamentally alone because it's not always clear who to ask for help. And when there is someone to ask for help, it's also really hard to ask for help by way of setting up this environment where people are encouraged to do challenges and talk with one another and to ask for help. That's a really powerful thing. It may not seem that way, but man, huge props to you. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. It's, uh, but it's not easy. It's quite, um, it's difficult. If you give a coding club for beginners, then you lose maybe the, the most advanced uh, researchers. If you give only advanced sessions, then you lose the beginners. And that is really what you don't want. So we try to say that the session is for beginner, but in the session, the first challenge is quite easy. The second is slightly more difficult. And the third is way more difficult than the first one. In this way, we have some, some ones are very fast and go to the third in a, 10 minutes. We give some time a bonus challenge. So if people are too good, they can just use the bonus challenge to, yeah, so to do something more. But the point is to help each other. So for that reason, we also use HackMD. It's an internet site where you can make markdown documents and you can 
together, you can write that. So everybody who has an access to this uh, ECMD document can just write in it. So we invite people to put their own solution in this ECMD so that we can review uh, all of the solutions at the end or after each challenge. And that's great because sometimes they find a solution that they didn't find. And it actually sometimes is better than my, the solution I had in my mind. So in this way, I learned a lot as well. I've used HackMD too, I think for the open containers community. It's basically a Google Docs for Markdown and it's totally fantastic. You're describing a lot of different kinds of tasks. And I want to ask, in your experience, what does it mean to be a research software engineer, and how does that differ from a data scientist? Well, if I speak about myself, I'm a research software engineer who does a lot of data science. I stress the word research in, in my job title. did a little of cloud computing and so on, but I don't make front-end visualization of web pages for them. I don't make any data portal for them. Sometimes I'm, I'm a data scientist. Sometimes... I help data scientists and researchers to make their code more standardized. So data management is very important in my work. So I see myself more in an FC research software engineer who pays a lot of attention in writing good packages. So unit tests, this kind of stuff. Well, you know, researchers, they just write their own code and data scientists sometimes as well. They write their own code, it works and that's okay. We want to take this code and to make it better, more elegant, to give more visibility, to make an package of that, to publish it online, to, to make it available on GitHub, for example, to improve that for, with them and for them. So versioning is very important. This is what I think about research software engineer in my experience. And this is, I think, if, like, slightly different between a scientist and research software engineer. That a scientist needs to get a result. The result is, is the most important stuff. Research software engineers writing good packages for us is quite important. And documentation, 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 documentation. <laughs> when I write functions, is I think 50% of my time goes to writing a function and 50% goes to write documentation for that function. This is, I think, the difference that I see in my work and why I'm called research software engineer and not data scientist. What do you see as the biggest challenges in the research software engineering community? <laughs> well, as a team, as a project-based, project-founded team, I see our biggest problem is that we are almost never first authors of any publication. We help a lot to write papers. We, we write papers as well, but we are almost... Yeah, we are never first authors. We are first authors of blog posts. So sometimes we write blog posts. So how can researchers better include research software engineers and what else can be done? They need to think about publishing data and to make the code available. But still, you know, the people doesn't know you need this kind of professionals to do it. So they try always to, you know, to, to do their own self. And at the end, you get uh, some questions from your colleagues. I need that. Can you help me? 
it's definitely common to try to bring in an RSC retroactively instead of proactively when actually if you brought them in in the beginning, you would have saved a lot of time, energy, and money because you would have taken a whole different yes. path and you sort of bring them in as like to triage and to deal with the emergency that the code base has turned into because of not proper planning. That is definitely a thing also um, in the yes. United States. Ah, okay. it's a, but I like to also to stress the fact that the things have changed, you know, and I'm working for a, a project that's called Tracking Invasive Alien Species. It's a federal project, it's a Belgian project. There was the need to publish openly, to publish data, uh, open data. There was need to, for uh, reproducibility and so on. So the fair principles, they were the, the goal, actually. But it's just not always like that. I like your the idea of, to, of these interviews. I don't believe in top-down solutions. No, it's always has to come from the bottom. Spreading the voice, spreading the news. Actually, I know about your podcast via a Slack community. So in this way, probably from your uh, podcast, I will know something more about other communities. I'm totally of the same thread that I think that the most powerful thing you can do is to increase communication between groups and then let sort of collaboration and ideas just grow organically because we all are sort of facing similar problems trying to help researchers and like working together we can come up with solutions better than if we're alone. So I'm definitely with you about improving communication and not having some hop-down leader be like okay we're going to make this policy and we're going to make this project and then you will do it. That, <laughs> that never works. <laughs> because that doesn't work for science as well. You want to tackle a big gigantic problem but uh, you have first to think about all smaller problems. I think that this community, uh, RSC community, will grow up uh, in this way, via communicator. I share that vision. So we're coming up on time. I'll ask just one more, a little bit more fun question. Yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were into photography. Uh, how does that influence or inspire your work? Yeah, I see it the other way around. I see that I program. I do my job as a software engineer as I was a photographer, as I was a scientist. I'm a team player. So for that reason, I was not a landscape photographer because I didn't want to be alone in the middle of nowhere to take a picture. I wanted always to, to have people as subject. And for that reason, what I'm doing now, it's actually the same. I program not just because I love programming. I love helping people. So I'm not inspired by my picture, let's say. I'm a photographer and I'm a sort of engineer just because I am Damian Roldoni. That's probably the best way to think about that. That's beautifully stated. I always really like to hear about parallels between very unlike things. And in this case, the connecting part is the people and you. And Yeah, people is the key point of everything, I think. Without people, you don't have programmers, you don't have anything. So even if uh, we try to make our world more technological and uh, to substitute people with robots for some jobs, uh, doesn't matter because who has to interact with robots? Who, who has to work with them? Other people. People is always the key point, the starting and end point of everything. Yeah, robot vacuums just don't cut it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Damiano, it was such a pleasure speaking with you, and I'm 
I'm so tickled that you're the first outside of the U.S. interview. So I'm looking forward to, I'm going to kind of keep watch of the, the coding club site that you have. And I'm looking forward to chatting with you more on the community that I, I joined where I found you, our open side. Yeah, yeah thanks. And uh, good luck for you, for your other interviews. And keep going, keep doing the nice job you are doing now. It's the most important. I like it a lot. Thank you so much. That's, that's very sweet. Take care. That's always. <laughs>